Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is your host, Bob Wintermute, and I'd like to welcome you back to New Books in History. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find interesting and interview its author. This week, we are very fortunate to be interviewing Michael Nyberg, the author of the recent book, Dance of the Furies, Europe and the Outbreak of World War I. In this important new view of the opening months of the war, Michael Nyberg offers us a fresh look at the July crisis of 1914, how it was perceived across Europe, and the first two months of the First World War. But rather than focusing on the same old voices that we've become used to of the European literati and political elites, Michael shows us how the average person considered the march to war. In the process, he reveals a number of startling insights that I think challenge the war's standard historical orthodoxy. We've come to accept that few people in Europe expected the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in that sleepy provincial capital town in Bosnia-Herzegovina, let alone that it would provoke a global war. But Michael Nyberg shows us that many of our assumptions about the collective and individual responses to the crisis are based on misperception and really on poor assumptions. For example, rather than a continent primed for war through a network of military alliances, unfettered military bureaucracies, and a cultural predisposition to view war as the greatest test of nations and men, He reveals a European society that genuinely believed peace was possible until the very last moment, and which only accepted war as a last alternative, this war itself being defensive in nature. This insight alone is well worth the price of admission, and there is so much more to be learned in this book to earn Dance of the Furies the label of revisionist history in the best possible sense. Here is a book that should give all who read it pause to reassess what they think they know about the First World War and its beginnings. I've just finished my advanced copy of the book, and I do believe it's going to be extremely influential in helping us reconceptualize the First World War and those caught up in it. So without further ado, here is our interview with Michael Nyberg. Hi, Mike. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm great. Great. Good to talk to you today. Everybody, today we're talking with Michael Nyberg about his new book, Dance of the Furies, Europe and the Outbreak of World War I. I've just finished the co- my copy of the book, and I really am confident that it's going to have a major impact on how we understand and teach the First World War going forward. In short, I definitely recommend this book, not only for readers interested in military history, but really for anyone with more than a casual interest in the history of the 20th century. Mike, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a professor right now at the United States Army War College, uh, coming off of five years 
running a military history research center at the University of Southern Mississippi, and um, I've been working in the First World War for quite a while, and I've been uh, an, an active member of an organization called the International Society for First World War Studies, which is based in Europe, uh, mostly in France and in Britain, and um, that group is, is an attempt to get people together who are interested in World War I across disciplines, across generations, and, and really across kind of things they're interested in, whether it's art history or military history or gender history, and, and uh, that group has been very helpful in, in forming some ideas and, and getting, I think, a lot of people thinking about the First World War in new ways and asking new questions, and, and that, uh, that certainly led into this project. That's great. That's great. I mean, it really is important to understand, I think, that the First World War is not just a military event. It's really a social and cultural event. Um, exactly. Yeah. Um, what prompted you to pursue this project in particular? Well, I- like most good uh, research questions, it came from a teaching problem. Um, you know, m- even when I taught a course in the First World War, I normally only had about a lesson or two, really, that I dedicated to the, the outbreak and the causes of the war. And it seemed to me you could do the causes of the war through the standard narrative that Europe was this kind of white-hot nationalist place waiting for a spark like the assassination of the Archduke to set it alight. Or you could spend 40 lessons really unpacking and explaining what really did happen um, and in trying to get at all of the complexities. And I didn't have a way of doing that. And I started thinking to myself, well, if I did have a way of doing that in, in a book or something other of that length, um, what, what would I do? How would I do it? And so I got this idea to sort of ask a different question than the questions that had been asked uh, previously and to try to come at this from a kind of social and cultural perspective rather than the diplomatic. And, and that was really the, the, the key idea that I was, I was kind of wrestling with for about a year before I really started to get serious about what a project like this might look like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's really an interesting book, and I mean this in the most positive way. I mean, it really is a revisionist account of what has passed for you know, how the First World War began, you know, and you're exactly right, I think, in describing how it's not just a case of this universal desire for war that we've, we've been taught or we've come to believe. At the start of your book, you note that you have six central arguments that will help transform how we think about the First World War. Uh, do you care to elaborate on that? Sure. Um, what I try to do in the book is, because, as you said, what I'm, what I'm doing in this book is really attempting to say something different and ask a different question and take a different approach. I wanted to be sure up front that readers would understand exactly what I was trying to do in the book. And I think maybe the two most important arguments that I make in the book uh, uh, of those six, I think the two most important, you've already hit on one, is, is you know, my firm belief that, that people did not want this war in 1914, um, they didn't think it was going to break out. They were stunned when it did break out. Uh, they were stunned by the speed of how it broke out. Um, and, and their their desire to fight, their their willingness to fight, maybe is a better word, their determination to fight, comes out of a belief that, that their side had done everything it possibly could to avoid a war uh, so that their war was just and defensive. And so I think using the words war enthusiasm misses the point by a long shot. It's determination to fight a war, uh, but, but I... I See no evidence of determination. Uh, excuse me, of enthusiasm. And the second argument of those six that I think is is probably needed a little bit of explanation up front is my belief that if there were nationalist hatreds and nationalist rivalries that existed in 1914, and they did exist, they were insufficient to cause a war. And mm. my belief that it's World War One that creates those hatreds rather than the other way around. So that World War One creates enough hatred and enough bitterness and enough nastiness 
to produce Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, fascism, a Second World War, a genocide. Those things come out of the First World War. Uh, there are there's certainly you know, the Armenian genocide is, is is a precursor, but it's a different kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were at least two of the arguments that I wanted to make as clear as I could up front, and maybe a third if I could. Um, I, I tried as hard as I could in this book to show readers that if you just understand the French, the German, the British, you're missing so much nuance that goes on inside those categories. And it's, only, it's impossible to talk about a French reaction to the war or a German reaction to the war uh, because of just the, the, the class divisions, the ethnic divisions, religious divisions, all of those things inside those societies. So this book was an attempt to, to get at some of those distinctions, so to look at how people in, in all sorts of groups responded to the way that this war broke out. Great. I mean, you know, that last point you make about, you know, focusing exclusively on nationalist or rather a national perspective of the war, I think is especially telling, too, considering that so much of our understanding of the war is informed by the British literature, that right. you know, we, we've co-opted this view that's not even our own of right. what the First World War was. Right. No, absolutely. And, and the First World War is such an unbelievably complicated event that, you know, we tend to simplify it in a lot of ways. To, to and, and simplifying it by national category seems the most obvious because they're fighting as national armies. But doing that just reduces so much of this that the rich texture that I hope I bring out in the book of of the way that people were reacting and responding to these events. And so, you know, again, it's an attempt to get people to think about nationalism because nationalism certainly existed, uh, but to understand nationalism as a factor, not the factor. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit more about, about some of these specific events. I mean, of course, we're taught since school, since high school, you know, that the the centrality of Franz Ferdinand and his assassination mm-hmm. Sarajevo is the opening of, of the war, at least the catalyst for the war. You don't disagree with that, uh, clearly, but you do note that at the time, very few people, even in Vienna, thought of it that way. Yeah, there's a wonderfully alluring narrative that, you know, talks about Europe as almost being this, this tinderbox is a phrase that's used in a lot of books, um, again, just waiting for a spark, and that the Archduke's assassination was that spark. And, you know, what, what you find when you look at the, the reactions of Europeans, very few of them think that this is going to be a big deal at all. And, you know, there's one from uh, two Brits I think I have in, in the book where they pull down their atlas to figure out where the hell Sarajevo is, and then they say, we never talked about it again. And if you look at newspaper accounts, it's on the front page for a day, it's in the back pages for two or three days, and then it disappears. It's gone. Um, what, what, what turns the Archduke's assassination into something much more serious are the decisions of, of a small group of people in Berlin, in Vienna, and to a lesser extent in, in Russia uh, to use this, this as an excuse for a very aggressive foreign policy that they also don't think will result in war. Uh, and I can talk more about what, what, what they're trying to do. But the important thing for me, and I bring this out in, in some of the early chapters of the book, is that most European diplomatic crises had gone on for months or years before being peacefully resolved. Mm-hmm. And that's what people expect in 1914. Um, what changes the game is the delivery of the Austro-Hungarian ultimatum in late July that really makes people aware that you know this thing could accidentally become something very serious. And because it happens so fast as well. I mean, it I happens you... incredibly yeah. fast. And there, there's even cases where I would read people's journals where they would be reading the, the morning newspaper and say, everything looks terrible, it looks like we're actually going to go to war. And then in the evening, they would say, well, the evening papers have come in and it looks like we're going to be fine. You know, and it, it's happening so fast and, and the, the information that's coming in is so chaotic that they can't really grasp what's happening around them. Mm-hmm. 
You know, I'm also stricken too how, you know, despite, again, the standard interpretation, just how close, not distant, but close the ties were between Germany and Great Britain on the verge right. of the war. You know, right. we're not taught that. We, 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 don't, we don't see that in any of the standard accounts. Right, because it's so much easier to say, look, Germany and Britain were rivals, which is true, but I mean, a lot of countries are rivals and don't go to war. Um, you know, France is burning to get Alsace and Lorraine back, you know, all these things that we're told, because it is a nice, alluring narrative. Uh, but again, most observers in the summer of 1914, at least pre-ultimatum, thought that Germany and Britain were on very good, were on a very good path together, and that they had worked together to get the Balkan Wars resolved without those wars spreading into, into mm-hmm. a general war. They'd had that wonderful fleet week, right, as the Archduke was being assassinated, where everybody's talking about, you know, a wonderful future of working together. Um, so, again, it, it, the narrative is alluring, but it doesn't, it doesn't really explain what's going on. No, I mean, you also point out, too, that prior to, to July, Kaiser Wilhelm's reputation was rather as, as a peacemaker, not as a bellicose yeah. figure. I mean, it's yeah. just amazing, all these... these 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 revisions or these different ways of looking at what what the the event was, and I think it helps to explain why the Kaiser, more than any other individual, gets demonized in in the war years. And it, it was something that I, I I expected to find, but I didn't expect to find so much evidence of. Where people are are talking about the Kaiser, they're talking about Tsar Nicholas, they're talking about um, Franz Joseph in Austria as men who, who like to put on uniforms and like to be photographed around soldiers and like to go to maneuvers, but don't fight wars. Mm-hmm. And, you know, odd as it seems to us in retrospect, I mean, the Kaiser was on the short list for the Nobel Peace Prize in 1914 for what he had done in, in the Balkan Wars with the British. Um, you know, it's, it's Nicholas II that gets both of the Hague Disarmament Conferences going. The second one opens on his birthday to honor him. Um, now, that's not to say that they were truly men of peace, but it is to say that, that, that in 1914 they're not seen as the evil and or bumbling incompetence that we see them as today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm also reminded, too, that Tsar Nicholas at one point was, was considered for a Carnegie Endowment Prize That's for right. his own work in trying to restrict or limit war. You know, yeah, we lose sight of this. We lose sight of it. And again, I think that's why you know, the, the, the Kaiser comes in for so much ridicule, ridicule and the propaganda in especially Britain and France. They, the people in Britain and France feel as though they were deceived by Wilhelm, that, that he was kind of putting on this specific face while all, was, all along he was planning this German war machine. And, and it's why he's the guy. I mean, he's the one they want tried for war crimes and, you know, all of those things uh, because they feel deceived. They feel, they feel betrayed. Mm-hmm. You know, the, another thing that I'm really amazed at, and I'm going to have to applaud you on, and I don't want this to sound as if it's a, just going to be, you know, mutual accolades, but I'm really amazed at the level of research you've undertaken in terms of unraveling the daily response on the level of common society throughout Europe in 1914. Well, I got, I got lucky there. Um, I, I won a Guggenheim uh, grant that gave me the, the, the money to go and, and travel through Europe and go to Canada and travel through the U.S. and and be able to really read an awful lot of material. And um, what I tried to do in the book was juxtapose statements very often that that sound identical to one another being Mm -hmm. said on the same day, but one of them is in Germany and one's in France, for example. And and to show that the feelings were were mutual, just, you know, who they're aimed at and who they're directed at may change. Um, But but the the, the sentiments are are quite similar across Mm -hmm. space. Well, it's just such an obvious approach. It makes you wonder why it hasn't been been accomplished before. And I think back, you know, to arguments or discussions I've had as a student about 
just how new and how difficult good international history is. And I think yeah. it's what this is, is a good international history. Well, I think we, we, we run up on uh, two problems, I think. Uh, one is that, that, that First World War history has been so unbelievably nationalized. And the international society that I mentioned earlier, we've really been trying to get away from that and get to either comparative history or transnational history, which is you know, looking at the same kinds of phenomenon across, across borders. Um, and I think that's been one problem, that we're only now starting to internationalize or transnationalize the way we look at this war. And I think that the, the second problem has been that we, we've, we've spun ourselves around an axle of arguing over blame. You know, is it Germany's fault? Is it Austria's fault? Is it Russia's fault? And that, that I think, has, has, has gotten us looking at, at a question that really ends up being, a forgive me, a, a less spilling taste great debate because it can't really be resolved. Yeah. And so what I was trying to do in this book is just just change the focus of it a little bit and try to understand what's going on in the rest of Europe rather than in those 12 people in the halls of power. Right, right, and those 12 people who have consumed so much of the historiography exactly. very unfairly. You know, and speaking of, of missing players, I mean, you also restored the historical narrative the European socialists, mm. and, you know, beyond just merely a footnote. You give them really a, a significant voice to this. I think they're important because they are a transnational, international group. Um, you know, their meetings are, are explicitly international. They understand their movement to be transnational. And, and I think historians have misread what the socialists were doing. The, the, the socialists are often depicted as the, the, these people who believed in this international ideology, but when the time came, they were just as crazy for war as anybody else. Right. And I think that misses the point. I mean, socialists had been talking for years that if one country begins an aggressive war, they could use a general strike or a cross-national strike to stop it. But this war, because it's understood to be defensive by everybody, they understand that socialists have a right to self-defense. Mm -hmm. And even the French socialists say, well, look, if we were in Germany and we thought the Cossacks were going to ride down our streets, we would do what the Germans were, are doing. Now, that, that's before they realized Germany sending seven-eighths of its army west, <laughs> not east. Um, but, but the larger point is that socialists did not see a contradiction in self-defense and in you know, what they believed is socialists. Mm -hmm. And I, I think historians have missed that because they, they only read parts of the rhetoric. And, and there's the famous German uh, socialist vote on the war credits. And I can't count the number of books that say, well, look, the socialists voted for war credits. Therefore, they were enthusiastic about the war. Well, I quoted their, their answer at length in, in, in the book because it's very illustrative. What they say is, look, this is a war of emergency defense. We're going to vote for the war credits, but we understand this to be only an emergency war of defense. Right. We take no responsibility for imperial policy or, you know, and they even say when this is done, we're going to have an investigation and find out who did what. Which completely undermines the whole Bergfrieden concept as well. That, exactly. You know, that the, the socialists not only went along willingly, they put aside all of their differences for the duration of the war. And that doesn't happen. I mean, it's a wonderful PR stunt that every, every government does to say, look, everybody's on board and everybody's doing the same thing. But everybody understands what it is. It's a way for the government to, to depict national unity in the face of a, of a crisis. Um, and as I try to show in the book, by Christmas 1914, that's already coming apart. I mean, it's not even unraveling. It's completely coming apart. Mm -hmm. to, to produce the internal tensions that, you know, I think Russia, Germany, Austria simply can't manage. And as a result, you get to use the current phrase regime change in all three of those places. Yeah. And, and France and Britain are better able to manage it, although they go through periods of crisis as well. Oh, sure, sure. And in fact, the Francis case, they come pretty near to a regime change themselves, if you want to factor in the mutiny. And yeah, that could have gone. 
one could almost argue that Clemenceau's ascendancy is a kind of regime change because Clemenceau definitely changes the rules of French politics when, when he becomes prime minister and, and does mm-hmm. things, as does Lloyd George in Britain, uh, but they do it without overturning the entire system, right. as happens in Germany, for example, and what happens in Russia, of course. Right. And all, all of that stuff begins in 1914. And, and again, there's an element in the historiography that argues that you know th- this is this is a, a function of the big battles of 1916, and it, it's clearly there very early on in 1914. Well, it overlooks its big battles in 1914 as well, which is another exactly. problem with the historiography. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Turning back to the, to the socialists, I don't want to give them up yet because. Again, they've been underrepresented. You you talk about Jean Jaurès as a major figure, and you know I raise a question that many perhaps have raised: um, Had he not been assassinated on July 31st, would the course of mobilization or response mobilization taken a different path? Or or, or was Jaurès committed as well to a defensive war? I mean, the, the standard line in the historiography is if anybody could have stopped it, it was Jarez. Uh, but, you know, Jarez makes the argument. He comes back, and he, he, you know, he's also a member of the French Parliament. Mm-hmm. And so in that function, he goes and talks to the French cabinet when he comes back from this meeting in Brussels. And he, 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 he hears what they're saying, that the Germans are mobilizing. We think they're coming our way. They're saying it's a war of defense against Russia, but they're clearly coming after us. And Jarez goes to the, 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 the dinner at which he's assassinated and says, look, if I were in their position... There's nothing else. There's nothing different that I could do. Um, so, in my view, you know, Jaurès, Jaurès clearly understood that that socialists have a responsibility to self-defense. You, you simply can't let the armies of the Kaiser destroy socialism. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jaurès, being French, you can't let it destroy French socialism. Um, so, I, I think a the, the, the trains had already left the station, both literally and figuratively. And I think B Jaurès would have understood that, that that a war of defense is legitimate and just. What I think probably would have been different is that Jaurès and others would have, would have urged the French government to make a statement of its war aims. Right. Um, uh, I don't think otherwise there would have been too much difference. And he's a wonderful hero because he was a humane person. He's assassinated, and his assassination is far more troubling to people than Franz Ferdinand's. Mm-hmm. Um, and he does seem like the guy who's standing at the water's edge trying to push the tide back. Uh, but I, I don't think he would have been able or would have done anything different uh, than any other French politician could have done in that situation. Certainly at the moment. I mean, one wonders as well, had he lived, what his response would have been to the events of 1915 or 1916. Exactly. But yeah, it would have been very interesting, and it, it makes him all the more tragic a figure, because he, mm-hmm. he definitely seems like the one guy who sort of got it, you right. know. <laughs> uh, and then he's, he's taken off the stage literally hours before the German army begins its march. Wow. The, the mind boggles. Yeah. But rather than venture into deeper into counterfactual waters, um, <laughs> you know, you, it's. I have to ask, how do the does the average European person, if it's even possible to use that term, yeah. you know, granted, uh, how do they respond to the news of war when it actually happens? Do we really see a genuine war fever? I don't think you do. I think you see some uh, pent up emotion when people know that it's actually going to happen. That is, people. People are reading their newspapers, and again, one day it looks good, one day it looks bad, one day it looks good, one day it looks bad. There is, among many people, a sense of, okay, at least now we know what we're facing. Um, and, you know, war enthusiasm, to the extent that it exists, you know, uh, Jeffrey Verhey has done a great study on Germany, Adrian mm-hmm. Gregory on Britain, Jean-Jacques Becker on France. We have some local studies, and, you know, there is a, there is a youthful 18, 19, 20-year-old young man's 
great I'm going off to war kind of sensation that exists for a few days right. until the reality of what you're dealing with sets in. And again, the problem is that historians have cherry-picked those examples, I think. And, and when you look more broadly, the analogy that I use is a natural disaster. That, that, you know, and I think I bring this out in the book. I, I think I counted 35 or 40 references to natural disaster, that the war is a flood, it's a hurricane, it's a storm, something like that. Mm-hmm. And so what they see it as is something that's coming almost out of nowhere, something that you can't really prepare for because it is so sudden, and something that you just have to deal with and get through the best that you can and then clean up the mess that comes afterwards. But I don't see, I don't think I saw any examples of anybody saying, boy, thank God I finally get a chance to shoot a German mm-hmm. or, you know, I finally get to kill a Frenchman. I mean, I see none of that. Yeah. Um, not even in the military, from how I read it. I mean, you see no. a great deal of skepticism. No, that's right. And, and you know, we, again, we had this image of these armies just being on a hair trigger ready to kill somebody. And that's not what the senior military people are saying. Now, they may make a speech to their troops saying, hey, boys, we're going to Berlin, we're going to Paris, etc. But in their private correspondence and when they're meeting with their staffs, I mean, what they're saying is, look, I mean, we know what we have ahead of us. We know this is going to be very, very difficult. You know, we, we, you know, Moltke's famous statement, I'll do what I can and we're not superior to France, mm-hmm. is a very telling one. You know, that they, you know, some of these guys, Moltke is one of them that is arguing that if you're going to fight a war, this is a good circumstance in which to do it. But I don't even get the sense among Moltke where he's saying, boy, thank God I get to go out and into the field and maneuver armies. You know, he's looking at this and saying it's the least worst of all of our options. Right, right. And in their perspective, too, with an eye towards the demography that are shifting better right. now than 10 years from now. There's that going in. And, yeah. you know, in Austria's way of thinking, um, really, this is the first time in the Balkans that Austria looks like a victim. You know, their, their, their politician, however, un- or their heir to the throne, however unpopular he might have been, they believe is the victim of what we would now call state-sponsored terrorism, Mm -hmm. which gives them a freedom of maneuver, they think, that they're not going to get any other way. And as far as the Germans are concerned, they believe, especially once Russia mobilizes, that the situation will never be as good. Because what they do is they issue uh, an ultimatum back to Russia saying, you have to pull back your mobilization or we're going to consider ourselves at war. Mm -hmm. Well, if Russia does that, if they go with the ultimatum, Germany scores a very cheap, quick, big victory in the Balkans, and their ally becomes stronger. Mm-hmm. If Russia goes ahead and says, no, we're not going to do that, then the Germans can do exactly what they do, which is say to everybody in Germany, including the socialists, this is a war to protect you from the Cossacks. Right. And the Germans are aware that this set of circumstances may never come again. Mm. At least the German elite is aware of that. Right, right. Well, as, you know, as opposed to that, you have rural society as well, which is also quite skeptical, you point right. out. And nowhere near as, as eager, not only for the prospect of war, but for the prospect of losing their sons at, on the cusp of the harvest, which right. is going to be a problem throughout Europe. Right, and the economic dislocations at the outbreak of the war are unbelievable. Um, and it's also important to understand, too, that in 1914, even a country like France, which is probably the most nationalistic of, of, the, of the great powers, there are still tremendous regional differences yeah. inside France. And in Britain, of course, you have the home rule crisis in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Germany's only been a nation state for 40-plus years. I mean, these are still societies that are figuring out what nationalism means. And, and by no means does everybody agree on what that is. And so these are very complicated societies. I mean, they, you know, I used this phrase. I was at West Point two days ago talking about World War One. yesterday talking about World War One, 
And I said that we like to put the people of 1914 into a stupid box and then put them on the shelf. Because, <laughs> you know, the, the photos are black and white and the clothes are crazy and whatever else. But yeah, donkeys some, and lions and all that, yeah. Exactly. But in some ways, these are more complicated societies than ours are today. Um, even telling people that a war has begun or that mobilization has happened you know, you, you can't just put something on television that 50 million people will get to see all at the same time. I mean, right. it, it's a complicated process to do these things. Yeah, in a society we like to think is so modern as France, where you're still relying heavily upon horse-drawn conveyance and a local curé or local priest as being the yeah. really the person speaking for the government. Exactly, exactly. And some of these communities find out that, that mobilization is happening. You know, that they haven't. They, they may have very sketchy news about what's been going on. You know, in, in the Balkans or what they've read, they may have dismissed, and then the local policeman will start banging the drum at every intersection, saying, it's mobilization, it's mobilization. And, you know, there's a couple of times where people would literally say, mobilization against whom? <laughs> who, who are we fighting? Why are we fighting? We're going to war against Germany? Why? You know, it, it's, you know so it, it's not immediately obvious to people what's happening. Mm -hmm. And, I'm, you know, again, I think if, if you only look at the papers of the senior diplomats, you, you miss all of that. Right. We, you do very much so. Another area that or consideration that we've all come to accept um, is the idea that they believed it was going to be a short war. Yeah. And you point out that that's not so widely held in all circles of society. There's quite a bit of skepticism that this is going to be you know, a home-by-Christmas kind of affair. Yeah, I think it's all part of the stupid box. You know? yeah. We want to look back and say, well, gosh, why didn't they see what, what we now know? Um, and there were plenty of people who did think it was going to be a short war, but there are plenty more who understood that you get two societies mobilized. It's going to be very, very difficult. And this, this especially once the opening battles of the war don't become a Koningratz, as in the, the uh, Prusso-Austrian War of 1856, right. or a Sedan in the Franco-Prussian War, once the opening battles are not conclusive, as those battles were, then everybody sort of says, okay, now what? Now, how do we get out of this now? Now we have millions of men under arms. You know, now we've got a static front. Now, where does this war end? Now what's the end game going to look like? And, and that's when it really sinks into people that, that the war that really, the causes aren't 100% clear, is now going to go on for a very long time and kill lots and lots of people. Right. Right, and the military leaders themselves, you know, if we look more closely at the maneuvers or at what they're writing, they understood this as well in 1913, mm -hmm. 1914. Yeah. It's just, again, it's remarkable to me that it's taken so long to reach these conclusions. And, and it's a very rich historiography. We put more, oh, that stupid box has been used more often for senior World War I generals than any other group of people I can think of in military history. Yeah. Um, even the even the ones that were generally positive end up in that stupid box from time to time. Yeah. And again, it's one of the things about World War One that had me interested as an undergraduate. Well, how is it that the Civil War generals are pretty good and the World War Two generals are really good, even the German ones, right? But mm -hmm. the World War One generals somehow are all stupid, yeah. you know. And of course, what you begin to realize is they're not stupid. They serve, these are for the most part, as a group, very intelligent men some of whom should not have been in the positions that they were in, but that's true of every war. Sure. Um, some of them react better than others do. But these are very intelligent men trying to figure out what the heck it is they've got. And, and um, you know, Kitchener's famous phrase, I don't know what to do, this isn't war. You know, right. they, they're struggling for answers, too. And it's not that they're stupid. And, you know, I had this conversation with Army colleagues all the time. I mean, we faced a similar problem in 2003 where we thought we knew what kind of war we were going to get, and right. bang, we got another one. 
And I think, you know, you, you have to go through that process of figuring out which senior commanders can make those adjustments and which ones can't. And again, in the First World War case, there's no, there's no answer to the problem of trench warfare. And, and, you know, I defy anybody to come up with anything that would have worked at least, at least decisively. You know, I mean, obviously we can look back and say that some of the ideas were really bad ideas, and they were. But you have to go through a process of, of basically re-educating an entire generation of military officers. Right, and re-identifying an entirely new technology, an entirely new tactical approach, a new mm-hmm. operational approach. These aren't things that happen overnight. No, they're not. And, you know, in my view, World War One is, is one in large part because the British and French systems, and later with the help of the Americans, of course, have enough flexibility on the civilian side to stay in the field. Right. And the, the, the Germans don't. The economy comes apart. The society comes apart. I mean, you know, we, 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 um, we tend to forget just how desperate a society Germany was mm-hmm. in 1917 and 1918. Mm-hmm. Well, it becomes desperate even in 1914, as you point out, which, mm-hmm. which makes me want to then shift gears a little bit. You know, you, you point out, again, and you, you mentioned this in passing earlier, the war was a tremendous economic disjuncture in mm-hmm. 1914. You know, for workers all across Europe, the war is not something to be looked forward to. It doesn't fill their pockets. It doesn't increase their wages right. or improve their living conditions. And yet we, we again, come to adopt this point of view that this is an industrialized war, that the civilian population turns out en masse for the factories. Um, What's the reality here? What, what, yeah, it, it's a little counterintuitive because you think, well, wars are going to put young men into the army, out of the workforce, in other words, mm-hmm. and then they're going to create industrial jobs. So there ought to be very low unemployment. Um, what happens in the first few months of this war, however, is that you know France's biggest trading partner, Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, France in Germany, Germany's biggest trading partner is Britain, with France not too distant a second. So all of those export markets just shut down and. Firms have no place to send their goods. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is that none of the governments are willing to make radical economic changes in 1914 because if the war is going to be relatively short, they want to remain, as Asquith said in Britain, under business as usual so they don't have to reconvert. So what you have are, are these industries just throwing men out onto the streets, you know, unemployed guys by the tens and hundreds of thousands. I think Paris had a half a million unemployed. Um, so what you have, what, what that situation creates is a feeling inside these countries, it's true in France, it's true in Britain, it's true in Germany, that if, if the burdens of war, the burdens of war have got to be shared equally, the benefits of war should be shared relatively equally, mm-hmm. which means that these people should be given jobs or, you know, whatever it is that they need to do. Most of these guys are in their 30s and 40s, so at this point they're too old to really throw them into the trenches, um, and you're not totally mobilized yet. So you get these desperate conditions in the first winter of the war where people are really desperately poor. And inflation, of course, shoots through the roof because certain goods are not available. The army's taking a lot of them out of the, the, the markets, and people can't afford basic things. So from the very beginning, people are saying, well, what is it that we're sacrificing for? You know, and why are we having a, a reduced standard of living? What, what, you know, what are we doing this for? Um, do, do the things that we were told match up to what we're seeing? And it's a big problem. It's a problem in the countryside as well because – you know, farmers tend to hoard their goods, right. which means there's less available into the cities and, you know, all of this. So there's a lot of tension between city and farm, and um, there's policies to be worked out where, you know, there are cases in France where a soldier gets killed. I'm sure it's true in Germany as well. Um, and the widow can't afford the rent, and the landlord throws her out onto the streets. Mm-hmm. 
you know, eventually France is going to pass a law that says you can't do that. Um, but it takes time for the, all of these problems to become manifest. Mm-hmm. So it's actually it's it's incredibly disruptive and tough, and and that's even before all of the massive casualty lists of 1914 start flowing in. Right, at which point things become even worse in a, in a respect, in a sense as well. Yeah. Um, Let's just go up to 9th of September. You know, we won't go into detail about the Battle of the Marne. To be fair, you don't either in, in this treatment. Mm. But how do perspectives toward the war shift after September? I think the most important thing, I mean, the, the casualty rates are just astonishing. And, again, we don't think of 1914 in that way. But, you know, Saint-Cyr, the French Military Academy, has this list of, of young men from, from Saint-Cyr that have died in wars. And in World War One, it just reads class of 1914, and and it, it, the casualties are astonishing. And I have some numbers in the book if folks want to reference them, but um, it, it just stuns society. The, the numbers are just unbelievable, and it's not just the number of men who are dead; it is the number of men who are missing. Which in 1914 parlance could either mean that the body is in a place where it cannot be accessed; mm-hmm. it could mean you're a prisoner of war. Or the unfortunate reality of the 20th century, it could mean that you were standing so close to an artillery shell that there simply aren't enough pieces to identify. Right. Uh, and societies aren't used to this. They've never dealt with this before. And, and there's one um, phrase, in, one, one person in the book that I quote um, who says, I've received a letter saying that my son is missing. Should I speak of him in the present tense or the past? And they just don't know how to handle it. And then, of course... This war also produces an unbelievable number of disfiguring wounds from mm-hmm. artillery shells. And, you know, societies, they're just not prepared for this. And there's a tremendous psychological shock that goes on in all of these societies that, again, I think we've paid insufficient attention to, you know, both as a way of um, understanding the disillusion that comes after the war and, frankly, of looking at the appeal, and I, I make this argument at the end of the book, looking at the appeal of post-war ideologies like fascism, which at least pretend they have an answer to fill that emotional gap. Right. I'm putting by two of Jay Winner's work. Um, right. That goes back in that, and where he just describes the rise of spiritualism in the 1920s and other cultural phenomena, much of them dealing with reconciling loss and coming right. to grips with just such a, so a tremendous void that exists yeah. between their past memories and, and the present. And we tend to focus on soldiers, of course, but you know there's a there's a home front element to this. I mean, it's entire communities that lose their young men because it's true in Britain, it's true in France, it's true to a lesser extent, I guess, in Germany that these are locally raised units, and yep. and when they go to combat together, I mean, communities lose seventy five percent of their young men in 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 the course of forty eight hours. You know, it's what happens to these small communities is unbelievable. And I when I take students to France, I like to point out the World War One markers that every town has, and right. you know. Small towns will have you know twenty five names and three last names, you know, meaning that all these guys came from three families, and yeah. and you know that kind of devastation just, you know, even if France does get back Alsace and Lorraine, it's not going to fill that void in people's people's souls. No. And so you know th- there is that element of World War One that I think we've we've really not gotten our heads around. I mean the the level of loss that you know, thank heavens the United States has never had to face. Right. Right. Well, at least not since the American Civil War. Yeah, yeah. Which has become, yeah, you know, just so far lost in, in that kind of popular memory or, or family memory. Yeah. What do you think is the most critical effect of the the shifting attitudes that you describe in the book? The one that, that has the most lingering effect, you think? 
I, I think it's, it's the beginning of this process of disillusionment. And I think what happens by the end of 1914 is that even people that, that now think the war was a really bad idea to have started, and even people who believe their own government had lied to them, understand that there's now nothing else you can do but fight this out. So by, by even October, November, you, you can read Katakowicz, the German artist, is one person who writes this letter just before her son is killed on the Western Front where she says, you know, I don't understand why we're here. I don't understand how we got into this. Um, but now we have no choice but to see this to the end because you've already gotten to the point where you're fighting a total war, which means you're going to end up with a total peace. One side is going to defeat the other. Right. Uh, and this becomes a problem throughout World War I, of course, as nobody can really identify what their actual war aims are. And there's a couple half-hearted attempts to do this, but Germany really digs a hole for itself when it conquers Romania in 1916, and then when it writes the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk in 1917, mm -hmm. because all the French and British have to do is go back to their own people and say, look, look what the Germans did to Russia. Look what the Germans did to Romania. This is what they're going to do to you. And you have no choice at that point but to fight on. Even if nobody can recall how the shooting of, a, of an archduke nobody had ever heard of had put them in the position that they were now in. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that, that sense of disillusion is the big problem, so that when you get to the end of the war, there's nothing. I mean... You know, maybe for a while Wilsonian ideals might have filled that void, but there's nothing that the Treaty of Versailles is going to do that's going to make the Germans feel any better about the war. Of course, they're on the defeated side, right. but anything that's going to make the British, French, or Americans feel better about what happened. And, and all of that happens in 1914. And I think, my own personal view, you know, those seeds that are planted in 1914, they give us everything that Europe goes through in the, in the first half of the 20th century. They give us all the nastiness that we now know human beings in Europe are capable of. Mm -hmm. And it comes out of that disjuncture. Mm -hmm. And that's why I thought focusing on those couple months of 1914 were so important. I mean, that's the break. If, if there's a watershed moment, that's it. It's that, it's that attempt to understand the disjuncture and the realization that there's no way to square that circle. Mm. It's depressing. It is. It, is. It, and, and it, it depresses an entire continent that, that really can't figure out what's going on. And, you know, I haven't done as much work into this, but there's a wonderful book by a man named Erez Manella called The Wilsonian Moment, in which he argues that, that really it, it is Woodrow Wilson that, that presents the only ideal that can cross national boundaries to explain how this is going to make the world better. And then, of course, that comes completely apart. Right. So... You know, breaking those pieces of 1914, um, you know, putting those back together is virtually impossible. And that's why, you know, I ended the book with a very prescient British writer who wrote a letter to the editor to his newspaper, basically saying everybody thinks when a war begins that, you know, you're going to win and you're going to do what you wanted to do. But eventually the war becomes the winner, you know, right. and, and, you know, I think it's, 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 the, it's an interesting thing. It's, it's been a part of the book that people have picked up on that I don't think I meant it quite in the way folks are reading it, but I understand you know, that, that it, is, it is something that has become more obvious, I think, to a lot of people since 2003, that you know, when you start a war, you really have no idea how that war is going right. to end. Well, that's, that's what I was going to add, is I think what makes that such a prescient and such a telling quote at the end is because we are in the midst of where we are now. And yeah. in so many ways, Mike, we're, we're look, I think we're looking at the same not entirely the same set of issues, but similar issues. Yeah, I agree, and that's why I don't like putting 1914 in the stupid box, because I think, you know, we're guilty of some of those same presumptions of short war, you know, um, you know, inexpensive war, casualties low, no big effects through the region, you know. 
you know, I, again, I, you know, not to make this too precedent, because of course we don't know how all this is going to turn out. But um, I was in France last month at, at, at one of the French uh, research uh, think tanks, and they were very worried about this with the Libya situation. That, that mm-hmm. they know what they've started, they don't really see how they're going to end it, and and you just don't know what kinds of things you're you're leaving behind you. And World War One, of course leaves everything behind it. Yeah. And, of course, the more bitter and prolonged the conflict becomes, the greater the problem. The That's right. That's right. The nastier the feelings and, and the more susceptible people are to ideologies that say, well, look, I mean, the reason this happened is because these people did this to us and we have to fight and kill to avenge that and right. to, to correct those wrongs. Um, in, in a way, you know, I'm not a, uh, as much a specialist on the Second World War. At least people in the Second World War can construct narratives so that they understand what it is they think they're doing. Mm-hmm. In World War One, that's much, much harder for people to do. Yeah. And I think it's why we pay so little attention to it in the United States, because it's just too complicated to, to deal with. Well, it's complicated for us. And also, you know, to be fair, we're, we're such a lesser part of it. It, it really yeah. isn't our war to yeah. the same extent that it is Britain's war or France's war. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Mike, it's customary when we do these things to close out with a question about future endeavors. Um, What are you looking forward to next? Where do you go from here? (laughs) I just got done saying that I'm not as much a specialist in World War II, but the next book that I'm working on is on the liberation of Paris in 1944. And this one was less a teaching problem than it was a a friend of mine calling me and saying, hey, I'm going to Paris. Uh, I'd love to take a book on, on the liberation with me on the flight. What would you recommend? And I said, well, there was a book done in the mid-1960s, uh, Is Paris Burning, that became a movie yes. uh, that isn't very good, and it's you know almost 50 years old at this point. And I said, uh, I don't really think there's much that I would, I would recommend to you. And then about three nights later, at about 2 o'clock in the morning, I woke up and said, well, why the hell wouldn't I write it? You know, it's, <laughs> it's one of those situations where you know, it's a book I want to read, so I'll write it you know, kind of thing. Um, so I've been working on that, which has been a nice little distraction but, uh, from World War I, but Again, I keep I keep seeing those echoes, you know, throughout mm-hmm. the French experience, and I keep you know hearing when I'm looking at people in, in in Vichy or people that weren't Vichy but but were willing to deal with the Germans, you know, they they keep coming back to this idea that it's better to try to negotiate our way out of these things than to do what we did in 1914. That it whatever happens to us can't possibly be as bad as what happened in 1914. And mm-hmm. there are some Frenchmen at the end of the war who are saying, look, I mean, we had a terrible occupation. Yes, things were terrible, but we came out of this better than we did in 1918. And some of that stuff turns my stomach a little bit because, I, yeah. you know, we know now what, what the cost of that was. Right. Um, but the logic of that was appealing to a lot of people in France. And, um, you know, that, that gets into more difficult questions that, that the book on Paris isn't really about. But in some ways I see it as a kind of closed parenthesis almost. Well, you write it. I'll read it. I guarantee you that. <laughs> and I'll, I'll even try to teach with it. <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm working. It's, it's a, you know, it's been a great book to work on. I mean, it, it, it's a wonderful project, project that lets you go to Paris a couple of times and, <laughs> and you know, uh, walk around that beautiful city and, and try to reconstruct events. And, and um, so it's been a nice project to work on, and I, I've enjoyed working on it quite a bit. And it, it's focused as squarely as I can focus it on the French experience whereas most of the American stuff focuses on Bradley and Eisenhower, yeah. and, you know, who are players. But, there's a, again, there's a French dimension to this that, that Americans haven't really dealt with, and, and the French, for, for reasons peculiar to France, don't really want to deal with. Right. So, um, so I'm going to do it. Good, good. Well, I look, yeah. I look forward to it. And we'll, have, we'll have you on in two years when it comes out in print. That sounds great. So, Mike, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks very much. Yeah. 
You've been listening to our interview with Michael Nyberg about his latest book, Dance of the Furies, Europe, and the Outbreak of World War I. This is your host, Bob Wittermute. For new books in military history, thank you for listening. Thank you.